Welcome back to the DSO Decision. I'm your host, Brian Hanks, joined by my co-host, David Cohen Esquire. David, hello. How's it going? Excited to be here again. We're, we're matching these up and providing an arsenal for all the doctors. This is great. I've, you know, I'm, I'm talking to some doctors who are listening and they're, they're sharing that this is the first time they've heard people talk candidly and openly about pros, cons, details. It kind of pulled back the curtain a little bit. Um, so I, I hope folks that are listening are getting the value. And um, you know, just as a reminder for people, uh, we mentioned this a few times throughout, but it bears repeating. Uh, you'll notice I'm not pitching a service. David's not pitching a service. You'll notice that um, there aren't sponsors. We're not interrupting your listening with a bunch of ads and things like that. This is an attempt to just be helpful for the industry. Now, of course, if uh, you like what David has to say and you need an attorney, I highly recommend you reach out to him. If you're looking for somebody to crunch the numbers on your deal, uh, be happy to take a look. But the point of this podcast is just to raise intelligent questions and to raise the overall intelligence of the dental industry when it comes to the DSO decision. So if you found this valuable, really there are two things you can do to, to pay us back, so to speak. Number one is um, if, if this podcast has been helpful, please just forward it over to a buddy, a friend, somebody from dental school that you think might benefit from this discussion. Spread the word, that'd be the first and most helpful thing you can do. Second, if you really feel grateful, and we'd appreciate this if you left a review on iTunes so that other dentists could find it, we'd appreciate that also. But um, with that, David, we're going to talk about uh, what you and in, in your firm and a lot of legal firms call ancillary documentation. Okay, my eyes glazed over a little bit, and I'm an accountant. It takes a lot to glaze my accountant <laughs> eyes over. <laughs> but this is, this is important um, because these are documents that sometimes surprise doctors. They're, they've done the deal. They've crunched the numbers. They've decided they're okay with the money. They're getting towards the closing table or they're at the closing table and people start, whether it's electronically or physically in person, sliding documents across the table for them to sign. Sometimes it's the first time they're seeing it or hearing about it. And we want to avoid the situation where a doctor is surprised by some of these documents that are going to pop up towards the end of the deal. Correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, perfect. Okay. So first of all, um, when, when you, when, at your law firm, when you guys internally as, as lawyers are talking about ancillary documentation, what do you mean on a DSO deal? Give me an overview and then we'll dive into the details. I'm glad that you asked, what do we mean? Because this is not a term that's used um, sort of like set in stone across the industry. It's really just what my firm calls him and a few other firms that we do business with. But really why we call these documents the ancillaries are is because there are main documents to the deal, and those are typically the asset purchase agreement, the employment agreement, and the rollover subscription agreements to the stock, as we've talked about on the prior podcast. Mm -hmm. There are a number of other documents, and as a doctor that's selling to a DSO, you'll see you have a battery of probably anywhere between 10 to 20 documents. And those documents are what we call the ancillaries because those documents are ancillary to those main documents that I just referenced. These documents are formalities in a lot of respects, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't still review them with your attorney. And there are a couple of them that actually can have an impact and that are important to not just glaze over. And so that's that's the definition of, uh, of ancillary. My understanding is the the um, invention of DSOs came about because in the olden days and olden, I'm thinking like, you know, 
20 years ago, 25 years ago, not that old. But, um, you know, it used to be that only a dentist could own a dental practice, period, end of story. That started to change a few decades uh, ago, um, state by state, and different states have different rules and everything else. But um, now it's pretty common for business entities of different types and different individuals to own a dental practice. And some of these ancillary documents are the documents that make it possible for a non-dentist to own either part of or all of your dental practice. Um, is that is that a fair statement? Am I missing anything with that? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'm really glad you brought that up because that that's the link, right? Why do we have these ancillary documents? We have them because the DSO has to put them in place in order for them to benefit from the purchase of the practice. Why is that? Because like you mentioned, in most states in the country, a non-dentist cannot own a dental practice by law. And so in order to get the revenue from the practice, the DSO has to create a structure under which they have a management company that performs bona fide services to the practice in exchange for fees. And the fees pretty much just so happen to be the amounts that they're pulling out of the practice to get the revenue out because they can't just directly own the clinical entity because they're not licensed dentists. And so that creates a need for a lot of ancillary documents. So one example would be that if the DSO can't own the, the dental practice directly, that if they're going to own non-clinical assets, such as furniture, fixtures, equipment, supplies, things that anybody can own, the practice still has to be able to use that. So mm -hmm. an example of one ancillary document would be an equipment use agreement where the DSO is going to enter into that equipment use agreement with the practice for the practice to be able to use the equipment because yep. the DSO is going to want to own everything it possibly can by law to preserve their investment because the more they own, the more secure their investment is and the more risk that they mitigate. They want to own everything they can by law and then everything they can't own is obviously owned by the clinical entity. And they have these agreements between the DSO and the, and the clinical entity so that the DSO has some sort of rights that go along with uh, the practice. Equipment use agreement. Okay, so let's do this. Here's what I'm imagining. If I'm a doctor, I'm working out at the gym and listening to the podcast. I'm driving in the car, commuting or something, listening. Um, this is what I would do. Uh, I would listen to this list of documents be familiar with the concept in general, make a mental note that if you ever sell to a DSO to come back to episode 10 and listen to the specifics here. But here's the specifics that I want to get into, David, with you is one, can you just list the document, give me a brief summary of it. And then I think the big question is, is, is this a formality? Can I just sign it without reading it? Or do I actually need to read the document? And if the answer is the latter, I actually need to read this, maybe give me a pointer or two or three, as the case may be, um, as to what to watch for. Um, so let's let's list the documents. Give me a, a sense of uh, read or not read, and then if if I need to read it, what do I watch for? Is that fair? That's great. Yeah, let's do it. What? Okay, so equipment use. Maybe can we start with that document? Yeah, let's start with that document. And the one caveat that I'll say is every deal is going to be different for all you out there, and so. Yeah. The ones that I'm going to mention here are going to be those that seem to be staples in essentially every deal. It doesn't mean, though, that there won't be others just based on the facts of your deal. So starting out with the equipment use agreement, 
Again, I'll kind of lay the foundation by saying in a deal that's a DSO deal, there's going to be a DSO entity that's owned by the DSO and they're going to want to own, they're going to purchase all of the non-clinical assets of your practice because those are things that the DSO is allowed to own and non-clinical assets are going to be furniture, fixtures, equipment, supplies, you know, mainly. So they're going to buy those things. They're not allowed to buy the clinical assets because those have to be owned by the clinical entity, which has got to be owned by a licensed doctor. What are some examples of clinical assets? Just briefly, if it matters. I mean, the clinical assets, I think the main, the really the main clinical asset that, that is notable is the patient records and, you know, okay. the doctor that's the custodian of the patient records. Um, obviously that's going to vary by state to state, but mm-hmm. the, you know, the patient records probably the key clinical, okay. um, clinical asset. Oh, yeah, because from an outsider, I'd think a, a drill, a handpiece sounds pretty clinical to me, but you're saying, no, 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 legally, that's just equipment and anybody can own that. But the the actual you know patient record, the right to do dentistry on someone, that is clinical. Okay, I'm with you. Right. I love that you mentioned that um, because when a doctor hears clinical, they think of things that are used in the clinic to perform right. dentistry. Chairs, like imaging chair, anyone can put a dental chair in their house if they want to. So I think that's... That's really the key is that these are going to be the assets that are, when I say non-clinical, these are assets that a non-dentist is allowed to own. Okay. So, so read or not read? Is this standard or is there something important here I need to watch for? Well, the lawyer in me is going to say that everybody should read everything. <laughs> and course, yes. I'm going to recommend that everyone read everything and that their lawyer obviously is going to re- read everything. But if you're a doctor that it tells me I'm not going to read everything, tell me what's important. <laughs> then I would say that the equipment use agreement is going to be pretty much a formality. Now, you have to look at what fee, if there, if any, is going to be um, charged in connection with that equipment use agreement. Why does it matter to you as a doctor? Well, if you sold 100% of your practice and you don't have any stock in, in the DSO, it probably doesn't matter very much to you. But if you are still an owner of the of of equity, right? Like let's say you got stock in your deal, which most doctors do, then it may indirectly impact you because any fees that are charged are going to be overhead of the company and might, you know, cut into any types of profits mm. that you might have as a as an equity owner. So you want those fees to be reasonable, but there are there are a lot of reasons why the interests are parallel amongst the parties into why the DSO is not going to do that. And oftentimes the, the equipment use agreement is not an agreement that even has a fee. It's really just a use, uh, you know, an agreement to use the equipment. Okay. So pay attention, watch if there's a fee and uh, yeah. Okay. That sounds good. What's next on our list. So another, um, another document that that's often on a list is going to be a um, credit and security agreement. Mm-hmm. And the credit and security agreement is often in place so that the DSO can loan monies into the practice. Um, and then in exchange for um, loaning monies into the practice, uh, the DSO often can get granted a lien on the accounts receivable of the practice. And that's a way for the DSO to sort of control the accounts receivable of the practice because the AR, you know, the money has to come into the practice. The practice is the billing entity and the money has to come in there. Now, the DSO, through the management agreement, which we'll get to as one of the ancillaries, can come in and perform services and often sweep money out um, into their own account 
through administering all the, you know, the, the collection of the AR for the practice, but really it's the practice's asset that's coming in there. And so the credit and security agreement allows a lien on the AR. Um, so oftentimes the DSO creatively will like lend money in so that they can collateralize the AR. Interesting. Okay. I, I got to think there's got to be some terms in my financial spidey senses telling me I'd probably want to read this and look at the terms, but is this um, just standard across the industry and it's always the same or are there? Yeah, I think this is pretty standard and I think it's a document that I think is, is worth reading, but I also, um, you know, it still is a formality in nature because again, if the doctor is just the clinical owner as a formality because they need a license, yeah, um, it may not matter that much to the doctor because ultimately the DSO already paid the doctor. So it's really the DSO's money. They just can't have it directly because they're not allowed to own a practice. So that AR really is the DSO's money. Um, they're just finding a creative way to collateralize it um, in the process. Now, again, if you're an equity owner, then indirectly, you might be affected by it. And you okay. want to look at, okay, if there's a loan being made to the practice, what type of interest is being charged on it? And, you know, that obviously the interest that's charged, that's money that... Um, is going to the to the DSO before obviously the profits are split. So that's another another one. But usually you would see a pretty low uh, percentage there. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. All right. A little bit more form more of a formality and uh, something to watch for. Credit agreement. Got it. What's next? Um, the, the next agreement I think I'll mention is the business services agreement or management agreement. Often it's called. Um, this is the main document that is between the DSO and the practice that governs. The relationship. I mean, really, this is the main vehicle for the DSO to pull money out of the practice, to pull the revenue out of the practice. And this is the document where the DSO is going to provide all of these bona fide arm's length services to the practice, like billing, collecting, um, you know, human resources, really everything that the practice needs from a non-clinical standpoint. The, the DSO can't exercise any type of clinical judgment. They always have to leave the clinical judgment to the doctor that owns the practice, the licensed doctor. And the management agreement is going to say exactly that. It's going to say that they can't interfere with the clinical judgment of the doctor. But they can do pretty much everything else that's non-clinical in nature, that's really more administrative in nature. And that's the true essence of why these DSOs existed from the start, was to have companies that could come in and take a lot of the load off the doctor and not have to do all of the non-clinical things and just focus on practicing dentistry. So all of these services are going to be performed in exchange for fees. And the fees are really the revenue that the, that the DSO is taking out of the practice in exchange for all the work they're doing. And that's really the main vehicle. Now they can again, diversify it a little bit in the equipment use agreement. And, you know, uh, there's a couple other documents that I'll reference after this, but really that's the main flow of, yeah. of the money. That sounds more like more of like a formality to me. It's going to be money in, money out. We're going to do hire, fire, market the practice, choose the hours, you know, that kind of stuff. You're going to do the clinical stuff. But maybe there are some details to pay very close attention to. Yeah, there are, there are a couple to pay very close attention to. I mean, one of which is as a clinical owner, doctor, of, you know, in this practice, the document is going to say that you have several responsibilities um, to the DSO, particularly in, um, you know, in paying those fees out to the DSO, which really aren't you, your responsibility as a doctor. I mean, 
it's not really your money. Um, you're just kind of sitting there as the clinically licensed doctor. Um, and there's gonna, there are going to be other duties that you have to watch for that are going to be said to be the responsibility of you as the clinical doctor. And so my recommendation for sure is to have some sort of indemnification language or actually what I prefer is a full indemnification agreement that essentially says like, hey, the entity itself, the clinical entity is responsible to perform all these um, you know, responsibilities such as paying the, the, the fees out to the DSO. But the entity is going to indemnify and hold the actual doctor personally themselves harmless from liability um, associated with these tasks that are supposed to be performed so that they can't be brought in um, or, or they can be brought in, but they can't, you know, they'd have to be indemnified and held harmless and covered um, in the event that they are, um, you know, held responsible for anything that they're really not supposed to be responsible yeah. for. Just like the DSO is really supposed to be owning the practice. So they get to pull all these fees out because it's kind of really their money. Well, the doctor is just being the licensed doctor in the practice as a formality because they need to in order to operate. But really, they're not really supposed to be the owner of this of this entity. And if there weren't healthcare regulations to circumvent, the DSO would just own the entity themselves yeah. and yeah. the doctor wouldn't even be uh, the owner. So um, yeah. or they might be partial owner. If it's like a JV deal, a joint venture, which we've talked about on prior podcasts. Right, right. This sounds like uh, prime categories for me to have a good attorney and ask them, hey, David, <laughs> am I protected here? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I think it's it's an indemnification agreement um, or indemnification language that would be helpful there. Um, and then also, too, you know, just to monitor the fees um, that are going and make sure that the management fees are not just reasonable, but like that they're actually justified and to walk through those fees with the DSO. Again, if you're a doctor that doesn't have anything to do with the, with the whole operation post-closing, either because you sold 100% of your practice or because you're the friendly doctor that they just hired to come in as a hired gun to be the owner of the clinical entity, then it may not really make a difference. Uh, you got the indemnification as long as you get that. But if you actually are, are a co-owner or you have stock, um, it, the fees, the management fees may matter to your bottom line. So you want to just make, make sure that you're being walked through those fees. I like it. Give me uh, one, two, maybe three more documents. What else is uh, top of the list? Uh, another document would be called the license agreement. This is for the intellectual property. So like if the um, if the DSO is going to own, you know, the website and, um, oh. you know, all, all, yeah. the social media, all these like all the intellectual property that's associated with the practice, the practice has to be able to sort of use that. And so there will be a license agreement where the DSO licenses that intellectual property back to the practice. I would categorize this under the same as the equipment use in the sense that I think it's really mainly a formality and, um, you know, it's, it's very seldom. Are there any, um, legal changes made to this document? Yeah. Like I was just thinking when you said intellectual property, my first thought was what intellectual property? I mean, there's not, uh, the dentists themselves didn't invent something new and cool. And uh, usually, I mean, there are some dentists that invent really cool things, but, um, okay, that makes yeah, sense. Usually, the intellectual property be trade name associated with yeah. the practice, um, website, social media, um, you know, things like that. Name, image, like this. There, former college athlete. Do I right. hear some jealousy? <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah. What else is on the list? Uh, I think you know another document that's going to be pretty much a formality that that never gets changed is um, 
a business associate agreement. Mm. And when you hear business associate agreement as a doctor, don't confuse that for like an associate right. agreement right. where you're going to work right. for the practice. Right. This is a document that's really in place for HIPAA purposes, mm. for HIPAA compliance, because the DSO, by running the practice and managing the practice, is going to become privy to information that's protected, most likely, and um, you know, patient information. And so this business services agreement um, really um, is, is put into place for legal compliance due to the fact that the DSO is going to become privy to to that yeah. um, the yeah. patient information. So and that yeah. that really is pretty formal, like standard and doesn't get changed. Very okay. Yeah, perfect. Anything else? I think the documents that I just referenced are probably the, the main ones that we often perfect. see. Um, again, every deal is different. You may have some different in your deal, but those are the key ones that you're probably most likely going to have in every deal. Hang on. Did I, did, did I just hear a lawyer tell me the answer is it depends in every deal? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it, def <laughs> it, it, it definitely depends. <laughs> All right, David. Super, super helpful. Again, if you're listening to this, Again, if I'm, if I'm a dentist, I own a practice, I'm thinking about selling to a DSO, I earmark this in my brain to come back to if I get to the closing table because there's some solid gold information in here and it, it only becomes applicable if you're doing a deal. But um, yeah, where else? Listen, nowhere else, David, have I even heard anybody talk about this stuff, let alone get into the details. And I think that's valuable in and of itself. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I think it's just important because as a doctor, you're going to get maybe 15 documents in your inbox selling to a DSO and you're going to wonder what all of them are. Yeah. My firm, you know, we will draft a memo to the client that explains in plain English, here's what all these documents mean and why they're here. But I mean, aside from that, it's going to be pretty overwhelming. And so it's just important that you have some basic understanding. Yeah, DocuSign is awesome until you just you hit the next button and it skips three pages and you think to yourself, should I go back and read those three pages? Right. <laughs> David exactly. says yes, and then everybody does, and I know. Uh, so, so uh, but the next topic we're talking is, is my offer good, right? And this is the golden, I get this question, I don't even know how many times I've gotten this question. I can't wait to get into it. David, talk to you on episode 11. Thanks for being part of the DSO decision. Sounds great. Look forward to it.